Thank you, Car Family. Appreciate that. All right. Uh, so we're my sermon this morning is on hope. It's the first candle that was lit for our Advent season, and I forgot to mention I'm going to excuse the children downstairs to, for Sunday school before we get started. Sister Roberta's back there. Awesome. Um, so it's going to be on hope, and the title of my sermon this morning is The Audacity of Hope, and if you follow politics at all, you'll know that that is a campaign slogan from our former president, President uh, Obama. And uh, I was when I was in Bible college, and starting in 2010, he was our president, and um, I had to write a paper on hope in Bible college, and, you know, the audacity of hope was his campaign slogan, and so it was, it was out and about, and so as I began to process what I was going to write in my paper, I decided that I would use his, uh, just research what, how he found, came up with this campaign slogan, the audacity of hope, and he even came out with a book after his presidency entitled The Audacity of Hope, and uh, he says that um, a pastor that uh, 20, miles, 20 years prior he listened to this sermon from this pastor 20 years prior called The Audacity to Hope. And in that uh, sermon, the pastor was talking about a painting written by uh, George Watts in 1886, not written, but painted um, in 1886, uh, called Hope. And the sermon, the sermon was kind of intertwined with that painting. And uh, President Obama listened to that. And then so he took the audacity to hope, and then he, he took that. And took the audacity of hope was his campaign slogan. And uh, his first mention of it, it was his, as he began to rise to national prominence, was in the 2004 Democratic National Convention. He was a senator there. He was given uh, the keynote speech, and he used, first used this language, and he started off, or in his speech, he started off to say, quoting Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. He said, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. And so he used this verse to launch into his platform and what he desired and what his party affiliations desired and his speech that kind of brought him to national prominence of beginning with this audacity of hope. Audacity means to be almost arrogant or bold, to have hope in spite of the circumstances. It's more of a wish, right? To have hope just to have hope. And so he used Hebrews 11. Now the faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. And then he launched into, I believe we can give middle-class relief in providing work families. And I wrote to Opportunity, I believe we can provide jobs to the jobless, homes to the homeless, and reclaim young people in cities across America from violence and despair. I believe that we have a righteous wind at our backs and that we stand on the crossroads of history and we can make the right choices and meet the challenges that face us. And so he used Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, to launch into what mankind can do, what a political system can do. And as we continue to read Hebrews chapter 11, we know that that was completely taken out of context because Hebrews chapter 11 begins to, to point us to the reality of what we need to put our faith and hope in. And it's not in mankind. It's not in the political system, but it, not of what, what we can put our faith and hope in, but it, who we can place our faith and hope in is what the writer of Hebrews wanted 
to convey to us. And so if you continue to read Hebrews chapter 11, you immediately see that. Do you see in verse 3, by faith, we understand, right? Verse 1 says, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not yet seen. And he says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. The writer of Hebrews points us to place our faith and hope in God and not man and mankind's systems. Biblical hope, biblical faith is placing our faith and trust in God and his promises. The writer of Hebrews in, uh, Hebrews in 11, he gives us a list of all the people, there's many people in the Old Testament, not all of them, but many people in the Old Testament that placed their faith and hope in God and his promises. That was the intention of Hebrews chapter 11. The writer of Hebrews lists Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rahab and Joseph, all trusting, in spite of what they were seeing with their eyes, placing their faith and trust in God and his promises and not what they were seeing and not in a political system or anything like that, but placing their faith and hope in God alone. It's not what we place our faith in, but as Christians, who we place our faith in. That brings us hope. Our faith in God and what God has promised. We have hope in this Advent season. We have this remarkable opportunity in 2021 to be in the midst of God's revealed uh, plan of salvation. His, His rescue mission is in progress, and we have the ability to look back in hindsight and see God coming through just as the people in Hebrews chapter 11, right, believed and trusted in God. We have, can look back and see God working in human history and fulfilling, fulfilling his promises time and time again, including the messianic prophecies of, of Jesus, the Messiah that was to come. We can see that God fulfilled those things and we can celebrate what Christmas is about truly is about the arrival, the coming of the Messiah the Lamb of God who came to seek and to save those who are lost, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And we can celebrate that He has come in that regard, but we also have this unique opportunity to know that we also have a thing to look forward to. His second arrival. Jesus is coming back for His church. Jesus is coming back not in, in, a, in a crib as a baby, He's coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming back to consummate his kingdom. And as Christians, as people who follow and have encountered Christ in a saving way, that is what we place our faith in. God's promise that Jesus will return. Jesus is coming back, and that is where we find our hope in spite of what's going on around us. That's the, the hope that we have, that Jesus is coming back, but we, we celebrate what God has done in the past. And, and so our faith that we place in God and his promises is not a blind faith as many that are outside the church would think it is. It's just something blind that we just trust because it's in a book. No, in, in the Old Testament, we see many prophecies of pointing to this Messiah that would come. 800 years, 1,500 years before Jesus arrives on the scene, God sent his prophets to declare 
prophetically how and when and who this Messiah would be. Now I'm just going to mention three. There's many. Our faith that we place in the promises of God is not a blind faith. It is a faith that is based on fact. Historical reality. Isaiah, 750 years prior to Jesus being born and arriving on the scene, prophesies of, that this Messiah would be born from the line of David. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. And he will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. He says a child will be born. He will be the Messiah. And he will reign on the throne of David. And the New Testament opens up with Matthew, the book of Matthew, which immediately begins to give us what? The lineage of Jesus Christ coming from the line of David. Luke as well. It's impossible for one person to just randomly fulfill all these prophecies that were written in the Old Testament hundreds and sometimes thousands of years prior to him arriving on the scene. Our faith is based on historical realities of what God has done in the past. Genesis from Moses tells us that God's scepter, his symbol of power, will be from the tribe of Judah. The scepter will not depart, Genesis 49.10, the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet. Until he who, whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. The scepter, the God's power will be from Judah. This is uh, Jacob having his 12 sons come to him and he tells each son what's going to happen prophet, prophetically speaking of what their lineage and tribe, their, what we now know as the 12 tribes of Israel, what their family was all about and he comes to judah and says the scepter god's power will come from you and jesus has fulfilled that he comes from the tribe of judah born in bethlehem micah chapter 5 verse 2 prophesies again 750 to 700 years before jesus arrives on the scene different than isaiah right a different prophet Speaking for God, thus saith the Lord. He says, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are a small, you are small along the, among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from antiquity and from ancient times. Another prophecy that Jesus fulfilled being born in Bethlehem. And so we celebrate those things at this season. We see that God has promised, made promises and has fulfilled them. 
And this Messiah that has come uh, through his progressive revelation, we've known that this Messiah that has come was not a military leader, a political leader. He didn't come to change the civilization just for the civilization's sake. He came to save us from sin, humanity from sin. The thing that has separated us from our God. The New Testament reveals that to us. And we have the benefit of knowing what this Messiah figure, even though the Jewish leaders at the time when Jesus was in his earthly ministries denied him and rejected him and and refused to accept his Messiahship, right? We know that we, we have the benefit of God's revealed and inspired word, knowing that what God has promised, he is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. He is the Savior of the world. It is he who can give us eternal life and deliver us from what we truly deserve. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that God has come from heaven. The second person of our triune God, God the Son, came and took upon flesh and did something that you and I or any of humanity until that time could never do. He fulfilled the law in every point because he wasn't like us. He wasn't, didn't have a sinful nature because he was God in the flesh. And we'll talk about it, but that's the importance of the virgin birth. That's why we stand firm on it. Jesus just isn't a good teacher or a representation of God. He is God in the flesh. And because he was God in the flesh, he could keep the holy law, the standard, the holy righteous standard that you and I can uh, uh, attempt to follow every day and fail miserably. And I think we can all agree to that. Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. He was the spotless lamb of God who went to the cross hung on the cross, and on that cross endured the wrath of God. God the Father pouring out judgment upon sin. We sung in Christ alone this morning. The wrath of God was satisfied in Jesus. Jesus took the penalty for our sin upon the cross. This thing of grace that we speak of, that the outside world just thinks it's frivolous and just an excuse for us to live however we want. This thing of grace, this gift of salvation that has been given to us because Jesus stood in our place as our vicar and took that punishment for us. This thing of grace is this unmerited gift that is given to us of salvation because a holy and righteous God remains just and righteous and holy because he's punished sin. But Jesus took it for us. It's gracious, unmerited gift of salvation given to us by God who is holy and righteous and has punished sin in Christ Jesus. But the beautiful part about it, the thing that I still can't get over to this day, and that's why I'm up here talking about it some 20 years later, is the, this Jesus took my sin and the penalty for it, but then, and then turns around and gives me his righteousness. I stand in the righteousness of Jesus. I no longer am bound by or condemned by what I've done. And when God sees me, I, 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 he sees Christ's righteousness and sees you if you're in Christ Jesus this morning. He sees the righteousness of Christ. That's why Paul opens up in Ephesians and says, we have every heavenly blessing. We are up in the heavens with Christ Jesus, right? Because we're in Christ Jesus. We have the righteousness of Christ. It's this beautiful gift of salvation, and that is what Jesus has done. 
He's given us an opportunity to be reconciled to God by believing and trusting in the good news that Jesus has died for you. I pray if you not, have not encountered Jesus in that saving way this morning, that today would be the day that you would abandon hope in all else and trust in Christ alone. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. No man can be reconciled to God except by trusting in what Christ has done for you. And we celebrate that. Jesus came to save us. Christmas is about, yes, Christ's first arrival. He's come to be the uh, spotless Lamb of God so that we can be reconciled to Him. But as believers, we, we also have this beautiful opportunity to await His second arrival. He's coming again. And so Christmas can also be this, this patient expectation that Christ is returning that we can trust in that promise. That's what he's promised for us. He's coming. He told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm coming to come back for you. Revelation gives us this picture of this new heaven, this new earth, where we will dwell with our God. This is the reality of those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. And so no matter what's going on in this world, no matter how dark it seems, this is where... We have our hope because we placed our faith in the promises of God and not in the things of man. Romans chapter 8 is probably, it is my favorite chapter of the Bible. It's just a beautiful chapter. I encourage you to read it when you go home. It starts off with this reality because I, 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 I tend to even, all these years later, just heap a whole bunch of condemnation upon myself. Maybe you're like that. Everything that you lack to do or not do correctly or not do enough. And Paul opens up Romans chapter 8 says, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus paid the penalty. We are no longer condemned. We are now adopted into the family of God. We, he goes on to say we've been given the Spirit of God so that we can call uh, God not, holy, you know, not only holy God, but our Father. He goes on to declare the, the golden chain of redemption for those who are called or justified and, and glorified. We, he, these past tense things of what Jesus has done for us, this glorification that we have yet to come to, right? It is a, it is a hope that we have that we'll be glorified one day. But it is a hope because we haven't experienced it yet. But Paul, when he mentions glorification, he mentions it in the past tense. It's already happened in Christ Jesus. In God's eyes, that's who we are in Christ. It's so encouraging. Romans 8 talks about the love of God. and Nothing can separate us from it. In Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25, Paul deals with this, this idea of us wrestling with, with what we have to put up with. Right? On this earth and the trials and the tribulations and the struggles in our own lives and around us and our families and all these things. And he, he just admits it. He says, For I consider, verse 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Look, what we're doing now, even on your best day, it's a beautiful day outside. I hope you guys get to go out and enjoy it this afternoon. But it doesn't compare to what is coming, according to the Apostle Paul. It doesn't even compare to the glory that is coming 
in this later time and when the second arrival occurs and, and God judges all who will not be found in the, written in the Lamb's book of life and, and sin will be put to death. <clears throat> we will no longer have uh, sin or, or sickness. We won't have COVID. No more death. This is what awaits us. And, and so he's saying, I, I consider the sufferings of this present time. And so the first thing we acknowledge is that what we're suffering is true suffering. I'm not saying pick up your bootstraps and tough it out. I acknowledge there's suffering in your life and in your families and the brokenness in my life and my family. But that's not what we're placing our hope and faith in. We're placing our hope and faith in the promises of God of what is to come in Christ Jesus. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Verse 19, for the creation, even the creation around us, <laughs> right? Perfectly made. Sin in Genesis chapter 3 enters the world. Adam and Eve fall into curse. The creation falls under curse. The natural evil that we put up with earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and, and death and destruction because of the sin-cursed world. Paul says, even creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. The full revelation of what has God has determined to do in salvation in Christ Jesus. There, even the creation eagerly awaits this. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And even the creation has hope. And the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay and into the glorious freedom of God's children. Paul begins Romans chapter 8 saying, there's therefore now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is our reality. That is the beautiful gift of salvation. I, I, I can't get over what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. I have nothing to boast in. You have nothing to boast in. This gift of salvation in Christ Jesus is a gift that we cannot earn or merit. But we wait and hold fast to the promise of this time when God's children will enter into this glorious freedom that God Christ Jesus has purchased for us. And so the creation itself also desires that time, that moment in time, this historical reality that has not yet happened will happen. That is God's promise. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And then he brings it back to us personally. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits. If you've encountered Jesus in the saving way, I know, I hope you know what I'm talking about. The fact that when you encounter Jesus in a saving way, the Holy Spirit regenerates you and then dwells inside of you. We've talked about we are now, we don't build temples made with hands anymore because we now are the temple of God, the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, and dwells the hearts of the believer. He is our down payment of this eternal reality that is to come. We have the Spirit given to us who will empower us and um, transform us into the image of Jesus as we learn to yield to Him and walk with Him in our lives. But He says, we, we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. That verse hits home with me. 
And I, I bring this up not because I want it to be all about me, but I, I'm hoping as I say these things, you know that I'm not speaking at you like this is, this, is, this is you, this is me, this is God's word interacting in my heart, and I'm praying that God's word is interacting in your hearts as well. But this reality of, of groaning, we ourselves groan within ourselves, right? We have the Spirit of God, we're given this beautiful gift, but yet we battle sin every day. I hate it. I want to be rid of it. It's groaning inside of myself. Why do I keep turning back to the vomit like a dog? But my hope is not found in my own self-righteousness and what I can and cannot do. Have a good day one day and a bad day the other. My hope is found in the promise that Jesus is coming back. My hope is found in the promise that my that I my Reconciliation with God is not found in my own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. That is where I place my hope. I pray that is where you place your hope this morning. We eagerly await with adoption the redemption of our bodies. It's a reality that's coming. It's a reality that's already a reality in God. But it's something we patiently wait for and hope in. Verse 24, now in this hope we were saved. Here's this hope, right? Our hope is found in not a system or a place, or, but it's found in a person, Jesus Christ. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? Paul's just being honest with us and saying it's hope because it hasn't, we haven't experienced it in totality yet. So it remains our hope, and that's what this first week of Advent is about, reminding ourselves of the hope that we have, not only in what, Christ is, what God has done in Christ in the past in his first arrival, but in the hope in the ha- that we have in his second arrival, in his second coming. We look forward to that. As Paul says here in verse 25, Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly await with it with patience, right? It is our hope because we can't see it yet, but we're eagerly awaiting it, right? It's kind of that battle going on. We eagerly await it, but we have to be patient about it too. We patiently await for the fulfillment of God's promise in Christ's second return with patience saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus, but, but please please use me to save my family or my neighbors or don't come just yet, right? The struggle, the tension that we have, the desire to see all things made new, but yet knowing that our loved ones around us have not encountered Jesus in this saving way and God is long-suffering, giving, us, giving them opportunity and us opportunity to proclaim the gospel as their, his ambassadors. But that's what we eagerly hope for. I pray that is where you're placing your hope in or who you're placing your hope in is in God and his promises. You're placing your faith and trust in Christ alone. And I just wanted to end with this thought, bringing it back full circle to the audacity of hope. The audacity, audacity means to be bold or almost arrogant with this uh, ability to hope. But as Christians, as Christ followers, it's, it's not bold or arrogant, Right? As born-again believers, we do not have the audacity to hope. 
we have the confident assurance of hope found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A confident assurance that he who promised is faithful. And that is what we place our faith and trust in. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the hope that we have found in Christ Jesus, that the promises you've given us, God. Many of us under this uh, roof this morning have tried to earn your favor through our own righteousness and religious works and utterly found ourselves completely failing only to encounter you and your saving gospel that you've done it all for us in Christ. And we offer our thanksgiving this morning, God, for what you've done for us. We thank you for the great salvation that you've purchased for us that we could not earn, but you've given to us as a gift. Help us to reflect your love to those around us this season. Help us to be bold and share this great hope that we have and what Christ has done. For your glory's sake and for our good, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.